I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. I just finished talking with former U.S. attorney and current podcast, analysis, and media star Preet Bharara. He claims to be a rookie at this whole media thing. But if you've listened to his top-rated podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, you know that's what someone in the law enforcement business might graciously call pretext. The guy is a pro. Our conversation covered the topics you'd expect, Russia, President Trump flipping witnesses, and some you might not. Like, what was that Senate staffer, you know, the one who looks an awful lot like Preet Bharara, thinking 10 years ago when a recently fired U.S. attorney described the political pressure on the U.S. justice system and the discomfort of receiving phone calls at home from top elected U.S. officials? Yes, that was 10 years ago. And how might that experience have prepared Preet when he got his own phone calls 10 years later? You surely know Preet's bio, chief counsel to Senator Chuck Schumer, assistant and then U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and now host of Stay Tuned with Preet, executive vice president of Some Spider Studios, and distinguished scholar in residence at NYU Law School. But before we begin, I want to tell you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report. What can we learn from the recent elections? What effect is President Trump having inside both parties? And what's in store for next year's congressional campaigns? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News's Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. And one other item before my conversation with Preet. I want to repeat and ask that I've been making on these podcasts. I hope you like these conversations. And if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. As always, of course, if you don't like the conversations... Please just forget I ever mentioned it. That's it. Here's my conversation with Preet Bharara. Preet, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I've wanted to have you as a guest on this podcast for a while, as you know. Um, I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're finally doing something important enough to warrant having you on. <laughs> well, I'm in the same business as you now, so I, you know, yeah. I, we're, we're now kindred spirits, but I, I'm a rookie. I well, they, a rookie. I, I feel, I feel the heat. I mean, I you know, did, does Howard Stern know there's a new king of all media? I mean, <laughs> he, he has not written me. No, he hasn't. Okay, well, um, live events are the next thing for you, huh? Should we should we give that a little? Uh, uh, yeah. Plug? Well, so first, first, yeah. let's. So I have a podcast now, yes. like you. Mine, mine has a different name. Uh, stay tuned with Preet. How close did you come to calling it? Stay tuned with Chris. I came very close. Okay. It's easier to spell. <laughs> uh, it's harder to mispronounce. It makes more um, sense, though. Stay tuned with Preet. Yeah. yeah. Stay tuned with Preet. Um, yep. So you've got that, it. and it's... Uh, it we've got is... that, and we're doing a live event on December 11th at the Skirball Center down in Manhattan. And my guest is Hassan Minaj, the comedian correspondent from The Daily Show, Yeah. who who once interviewed me after I got fired by the president, which we can come to if you want. Yep. Uh, he interviewed me in The Daily Show sort of making fun of the idea that I didn't have any real job and asked me questions like, 
what's it like eating expired yogurt out of a dumpster? <laughs> yeah, you know, did, it's not that bad. Yeah. Actually, you know, did you, you say not granola? Not, uh-huh. I didn't say that. I wasn't clever enough to say that back I, then. Or how about... Uh, I didn't have my know, game. You didn't have your game then? You, you've got, I saw the tweet uh, today from Pod Horitz that, uh, about your timing. It's the most important part of comedy, right? Timing? He was very nice about that. We did an event at the, at the Brennan Center, uh, sponsored by the Brennan Center yesterday, about the state of, basically the state of democracy yeah. in the country under Trump. And John Podoritz is not a liberal. He's a Republican and a conservative, and he has a lot of concerns, like a lot of mainstream uh, Republicans do, including Jeff Flake, who I interviewed recently for the podcast. Yeah. about how this president is conducting himself. I, I don't think issues relating to the president are necessarily Republican or Democrat. They're sort of in the mainstream of worry and concern for both Democrats and Republicans. The story and your telling the story of what happened and the extent to which you believe might have been the reasons and what, what you know, has any new revelation come to you about what happened and uh, why you're now in a career where you're getting to do different things? No subpoena, where I'm in a career with no subpoena power. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but, no, you, you know, just have to you know, ask I don't nicely. know. <laughs> yeah, but look, I, we have the power of the pen in our voice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so look, I was I was fired, which is com- completely within the authority of the president. We all serve the president's pleasure. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was a decision to just get rid of everybody who's a holdover by Obama. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that I didn't return the president's phone call. I don't know. The only new thing that I'm not saying is necessarily connected to my uh, being asked to leave is not that long ago, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago maybe, uh, David Ignatius in the Washington Post reported that there was a meeting, which I knew about at the time, but it was only reported on recently. There was a meeting between President Erdogan of Turkey, who's kind of a strong man, you know, an increasingly autocratic leader of that country, uh, had a meeting in September of 2016 when Obama was still the president, and he met with Vice President Biden to discuss various things, and among those things was a particular case that my, my office had been prosecuting against a, a gold trader named Reza Zarab, and that case is still pending and about to go to trial at some point. Uh, and among the things that happened in that meeting was pre- apparently President Erdogan slammed his fist on the table and, uh, and insisted that I be fired, which is kind of an extraordinary thing for the president of another country to come to the United States and talk to the vice president of this sovereign power and, and you know, deign to tell him who should or should not be in a local prosecutor's office. Uh, so you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think my firing had anything to do with that, but it's just another sort of interesting issue out there. Given also that Michael Flynn is in the news lately as potentially being the next shoe to drop in the Bob Mueller investigation, and we know that Michael Flynn had relationships with folks in Turkey and represented them uh, and didn't disclose some of those representations. So there's a lot of stuff swirling around between Erdogan, the current president, Michael Flynn, uh, the case that we had. And um, I don't make any, I don't draw any conclusions from it, but it's sort of interesting stuff. That's all. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll see. And uh, yeah, as you say, the the next shoe may be, and that you know what we're seeing out there may be Flynn. And uh, depending on what direction that goes and what comes out of that, uh, um, who knows where all of this will lead? And maybe if nothing else, you'll come out of it with uh, even greater understanding or some understanding of uh, the backstory about your own life. Isn't that something? I mean, it, it may be. You know, there's something out, you know, it, it may take this type of testimony to, to find out uh, what happened in, in, in your own life. Um, yeah, no, <laughs> reporters from time to time dig around on the question of what was going on at the time that I was fired. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what people will find. They may, they may find nothing. But 
you know, I think I think the record of a lot of things going on in the Trump administration that have nothing to do with me will be on display if Bob Mueller gets to finish his job. So you you're on the other side now, of course, and you're kind of the the John Madden of Russia investigation analysis. I mean, you, <laughs> that. you, you yeah. don't have your own video game series yet, but you, you know, not yet, not yet. But a telestrator, you probably have a telestrator. Um, so from from what we've learned or heard publicly from from the outside, um, is the investigation proceeding as you would expect? Has has anything surprised you? Yeah, not not really. Uh, given that Bob Mueller is as professional a person as you can find, and as above the fray a person as you can find, and by the book as you can find, um, I, I wouldn't say I was I was surprised. I was I was a little bit, I guess, mildly surprised that so quickly they were able to bring charges against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, and already had a guilty plea that was several weeks old by the time we learned about it from George Papadopoulos. You know, it takes a while to do these kinds of investigations, particularly financial investigations. And they had to look at a lot of bank accounts and see uh, transmittals of money, you know, between bank accounts. And they had to talk to a lot of people. And I know the public always thinks that these things happen quickly, but ordinarily, like in my office, any given prosecutor and any given FBI agent has a lot of cases on their docket. And, you know, one reason that things are a little bit slower in the real world in the non-special prosecutor world is that people have a lot of things on their plate. And if you're investigating, you know, a, a significant figure, and then all of a sudden your narcotics trial has to be retried, or, you know, something else happens in one of your other cases that's urgent and the time, uh, you know, can't be put off, your other investigation gets hurt and it takes a little bit more time. The thing that people should remember about the Mueller investigation is the special counsel's office has a lot of lawyers and a lot of investigators. And as far as I know, the lawyers on those cases are working 100% exclusively on whatever, on, on whatever Russia matter has been assigned to them. So that means they don't have, you know, delay, distraction from other things on their plate, like most prosecutors who have, you know, are career folks in other offices. So that helps them get to the, to the meat of the matter quickly. He also has a very substantial staff. And I'm guessing appropriately and responsibly, they want to do things quickly uh, to either put up or shut up. And, and not have this cloud hanging. It's not good for democracy. It's not good for the, that office. It's not good for the president. And it's in everyone's interest for them to proceed, you know, thoroughly and in detailed fashion, but quickly. When you, when you answered this, that, that last question, you started by um, really stating clearly your respect in the type of person, you know, for Mueller and, you know, top-notch and, and uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And you've asked a number of your guests um, about that as well. And I know, obviously, every time you ask that, you know, those of us who've listened to you um, know where you already stand on that. Um, you know, my, my sense is, Counselor, that you're making a case, um, and you're making a case against, um, you know, the, the, the rumors that we hear, and more than rumors sometimes, uh, that there may be action uh, against Bob Mueller. Um, that bothers yeah, I'm you, worried doesn't about it? it? Yeah, you're yeah, <laughs> worried about that. Yeah. Um, but, but let me say one thing first. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. Nobody who is, um, you know, human flesh and blood is a deity and shouldn't be lionized in that way. And Bob Mueller's a guy like anyone else. I think he's a, an extraordinary public servant and a nonpartisan person, although he's a red, I think he's a Republican and uh, was appointed by Republican presidents in the past. But nobody's perfect. And it doesn't mean that everything everyone does is going to be perfect. And, they're, you know, certainly I, I haven't been. Uh, and a lot of other folks haven't been. But 
he's, he's as good as they get, I think, and as good as they come. And I do have, a, I have two concerns. I have one concern, which is whatever Bob Mueller decides to do, it's not going to be respected by a lot of people because people are result-oriented. And if you don't like Donald Trump, then you want him to make certain kinds of cases. And if you like Donald Trump, then you don't want him to. And depending on where you stand on the political divide, you will either respect or not respect what he does. I, I, look, I have a view about a lot of things, including about Donald Trump and including about Bob Mueller. And I've tried to make it clear that, that I will accept anything that Bob Mueller ultimately decides because that's how the system works. And he has about as good a team as you can expect. They may not do everything perfectly, but they're going to do about as well as you can do in this country at this time. And if he chooses uh, you know, to stop where he is right now, I'll abide by that. And if he chooses to go farther, uh, you know, assuming there's nothing to indicate something was done inappropriately or there was overreaching, I'll abide by that also. So part of the reason for talking about him and his team is to sort of at least uh, you know, lay a foundation for people accepting whatever it is that he decides, because in politics, people tend not to do that. The, the second point you're raising, you know, laying a foundation for how big a deal it would be if he was diverted from being able to do his job, either by being defunded or being fired directly or indirectly by the president. Uh, the strongest thing I have ever said, and I said it on Twitter last week, is if Bob Mueller is caused to be fired by the president, the president should be impeached, period. Because I think that's an undermining of the rule of law. I think it's pure politics playing in to uh, decision-making. Um, and I, I think there will be uh, you know, a huge consequence to pay. And I'm not saying that about you know, other conduct that we're aware of, because we don't know enough yet, but but I think you know after the firing of Jim Comey, and the appropriate appointment of Bob Mueller, by his own Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who he praised to high heaven, um, and and Bob Mueller, who he considered at one point to be to be the FBI director, uh, for him to then, hey, maybe he won't do this, and I'm hoping he won't, and most Republicans Democrats are hoping he won't, but if he somehow uh, puts Mueller out of his misery and takes him out of that job, I think that's a huge mistake and should have consequences. So I want to talk to you about the uh, tension between politics and justice. Um, first, uh, follow up on President Trump. You you spoke with Ann Milgram, the former New Jersey Attorney General, um, yes. about this on your podcast. Um, does Trump get interviewed by the FBI? Will he? Well, my, that's what we both surmised. That's what we expected. No matter what kind of high-level official, uh, my view is, up to and including the President of the United States, before you close out a case if there's not going to be one, and often if you're going to bring a case, you afford that person, if it's open and notorious that you're doing it, um, the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, and sometimes that's for the purpose of seeing if they have anything to say that will clarify facts for you, and sometimes it's for the purpose of furthering your investigation. And I think it's public knowledge, I mean, I wasn't involved in it, but I think it's public knowledge, that at the end of the investigation of the Hillary Clinton email situation last year, that FBI agents interviewed Hillary Clinton. And I, 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 it's not necessarily going to be the case um, because there are some arguments that the president can't be charged criminally. And so maybe that has an effect on the decision. But I think it's reasonable to, to presume um, that the president, both because it might be worthwhile to the Mueller special counsel team, but also because the president went on the record at some point last year, in the last year, saying that he would happily testify and talk to prosecutors, that that would come to pass. It would certainly be interesting testimony uh, if and if and when it does. Yeah, you um, don't get to, you and I don't get to be there. No, no, I've, I put in a credential. I, they haven't gotten back to me yet. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, maybe Alex Jones can be there, but you and I yeah, won't be. Yeah, maybe he'll get there. You've been uh, commenting frequently, uh, recently on the possibility of uh, Paul Manafort flipping. Um, you think that, uh, that he could be. Um, first, is that based on just, you know, is that your John Madden position? Is it something that you're seeing? Is that something, you know, behavior? I don't know anything. I you don't know, know anything. I, don't I, know. I know. And, and even if um, you did. About, about most of, as my family would say, <laughs> I don't you know. I really know nothing. Nothing about nothing. No, but look, the, the only point I was trying to make for people for whom this is all new, sometimes you approach a guy and you say, we want you to flip and cooperate with us. And, and sometimes you even show up with a complaint. You show up with a criminal complaint. It's like, this is what we have. Sometimes you show up with wiretap calls and you say, I know you think we don't, we don't have you, but we do. Let me play this call for you. Let me play this other call for you. You're dead to rights. The best thing you can do for yourself, uh, the best way to help yourself is to help us right now. You know, with, and that's true of narcotics defendants, not just corruption defendants. You know, when, when I did narcotics cases, you'd sometimes approach a guy um, be in a position to perhaps arrest him right there. And you say, look, the, the best thing you can do is make phone calls to your suppliers right now and we'll record them. And that's the best evidence. And so that's one way of doing it. But sometimes the person says, go to hell. Uh, you don't have nothing on me. And they get arrested and they go to court and they're charged like Manafort is. And not always, and maybe not even frequently, but sometimes, depending on the kind of case, uh, they'll decide to cooperate that. And then obviously they're, they're open and known to be you know, arrested, they can't do any proactive cooperation. They're not going to get any valuable information by wearing a wire once they've been publicly arrested. But they can still tell you a lot about how the organization worked and what the conversations were that you then you know, corroborate in your investigation. And they can still be very powerful people. I mean, in, in, in big mafia cases, it was often true. You arrest eight or nine people at a time or, or a narcotics organization or a gang. And there was kind of a race to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So of the 10 people arrested, the first couple might have the opportunity to get, as what we called, signed up as cooperators to testify against other folks, and they had the opportunity for leniency. And then once you had two or three, you didn't need anybody else. And I'm not saying that's going to happen with Paul Manafort, because a lot of people, you know, particularly in the white-collar area, choose to take their chances and fight the charges. All I'm saying is it's not off the table as a legal, ethical, uh, or you know, historical matter that Paul Manafort won't be cooperating. And, and that could happen, uh, I'm asking, at any time? I mean, is there, a, is there a, a time frame in which flipping occurs? Does it, you know, happen either right away? I mean, as a general practice, does it happen either right away or then not for a while? Or could it happen at any point during a process? Have so, you seen? So, yeah. yeah, so technically it can happen at any time, but also depends on what the prosecutors need. So, Let's say, you know, taking it out of the realm of this particular case, uh, you know, they have a target X, and let's say it's, you know, um, someone higher up in the, in the administration, and they say to Paul Manafort, you know, we want your testimony, we want you to help cooperate against target X. Uh, and what prosecutors will say usually is, you know, your window is short because they want to put maximum pressure and make the person believe, and it could be true, that if you don't make your decision for God today, then you're not going to be worthwhile to us in the future. And sometimes that ends up being true. You know, you find someone else to help you get target X. And then if Paul Manafort comes in, then it's, it's too late. But sometimes it's the case, uh, it's less frequent and less usual, that someone can decide to flip, you know, right on the eve of trial and say, 
you know, once once they're focused on the idea of, of separation from their liberty, and they think, what am I doing here? And they talk to their family. And if the prosecutors could still use an extra witness to shore up their case, it could happen then. It, it, I think there's, on the continuum, the likelihood of people, the more time that goes by, the less likely it seems that someone will flip. But it's certainly not, you know, without precedent. So let me ask you about uh, the subject matter of your podcast, Justice and Fairness, and uh, let's throw a little democracy in there as well. Sure. Um, so I, I came across, uh, you know, YouTube is is gonna is is really gonna kill you, Preet. Um, I, I, <laughs> I need to keep my mouth shut. Well, in this case, you you actually did, but but uh, is about ten years ago. David Iglesias, the then-fired U.S. attorney from New Mexico, uh, he's testifying in Senate with Chuck Schumer about political influence in the judicial system um, after about uh, after eight U.S. attorneys had been fired, uh, as you know, by President Bush. Iglesias was testifying about uh, at this point about uh, at least one phone call he'd received at home from New Mexico Senator Pete Domenici, uh, who's asking about the senator, was asking about the status of some cases. And as you know, sitting behind Schumer uh, is, and I, th- I think this is provable, Preet, uh, his most handsome staffer, um, <laughs> at, at least at least at the yeah, time. I was much younger back then. Much younger back then, at least 10 years younger uh, than you know than when, when that was occurred. Um, and you certainly look like you are listening intently, and I'm sure you were. Uh, I realize the circumstances are obviously very, very different. Um, but was that testimony and that experience influential uh, for what you went through 10 years later? I mean, wa- watching Iglesias say, I received a call, you know, at home from the senator from New Mexico, um, having heard you say I received, you know, messages that the president of the United States has called me at my office. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it flashed back for me. Um, did that, you know, did that experience or what you heard or learned or thought about that, uh, um, was that influential for you? So I've had a lot of deja vu experiences over yeah. the last few months. Yeah. And one of them is, is the, what you described. Uh, so I've had a combination of deja vu and ironic experiences. And one of those is that, as you have been alluding to, in 2007, when I was chief counsel to Senator Schumer on the Judiciary Committee, we did a bipartisan investigation of what? Of the firing of eight, nine, or ten United States attorneys by the Bush administration back then, Ironic how then I became a U.S. attorney and got, got fired myself. The, the interesting thing about that time in 2007 was there, there were a lot of accusations swirling around that justice had been politicized and that uh, you know, some of the firings were retaliation. And this testimony that David Iglesias gave, which was very gripping on the question of, of what's the appropriate contact between a political official and someone who's supposed to be an independent law enforcement agent, was brought you know, was brought to, it was crystallized and brought into sharp relief. What's different from, from what happened in my case is I, I'm not making any allegation that the president or any other politician was asking me to do something that I wasn't supposed to do. Uh, so far as they went, they were, you know, friendly, chatty conversations. I still think that when you're the president, you shouldn't be cultivating a relationship like that. But in David Iglesias' case, my recollection is that Pete Domenici was, you know, was, was giving him some direction on a particular criminal case um, that I think he wanted to be brought before the election. That's highly inappropriate, improper, um, violates, I think, uh, oaths of office and also rules of ethics and common sense. So this was not that, but yeah, it, it, the, the way in which all that activity informs behavior is you want to make sure that there's an arm's length relationship between you know, the United States attorney and your office 
against you know anyone who's in a in political office, and that includes the president. And so, clearly, one of the things that was going on in my mind when Donald Trump called me on March 9th to chat after he had become president was a, a few things. And one of those things was my memory of the call between Pete Domenici and David Iglesias. And I didn't know or have a strong reason to suspect that I was going to be asked to do something inappropriate, but the best policy is not to have the contact. And, and so if the, you know, it also made me think about, well, gosh, this sense of, uh, and the tension between pressure and politics and justice, um, you know, is, is, has occurred previously. It's probably occurred throughout time and throughout questions of, of justice. Um, and, and so thinking about it, bringing it to today and, and, you know, bringing it to President Trump and bringing it to some of what you've uh, talked about and uh, um, that you talk about uh, in the prelude, the first part uh, about halfway through your Jeff Flake interview, but at the top of the podcast, you, you, got a question um, that, that I was wondering as well, which is kind of about uh, where does all of this logically lead? I mean, you know the background. You've got on the one side the president calling DOJ a laughingstock. He says he's upset with them. He's frustrated that he's not supposed to get involved with the FBI. He, uh, you know, recently weighed in with the alleged, you know, around the alleged terrorist. He drove his truck through the bike path in New York and said, uh, you know, we should send him to Guantanamo and give him the death penalty. Um, I, I assume he meant in that order. Um, and, 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 <laughs> one, one, one assumes. I assumed. I assumed, yeah. but, you know, I didn't get the chance to ask him. Um, so, you, look, you know better than I do. Historically, the, the Department of Justice operates independently, uh, which means the department is judged on its integrity to prosecute cases um, based on ideas like the fair interpretation of the law without fear or favor. Um, you've had to go through it. Uh, you know, you even had to arrest the Deputy Counsel General of India, which could not have been fun for you. Um, we all know that President Trump is pushing back on this independence. Where does it go? Um, how, do, how does that where, where does it lead and, and how does that tension um, how does that tension play out ultimately in this case, do you think? I don't know. We're going to watch together, Chris. <laughs> I think look, I, I think the most concrete way in which it's going to play out is through the investigation by Bob Mueller. And in the absence of Bob Mueller, I think the conversation would be, well, to what extent is Donald Trump, by his rhetoric, undermining um, you know, the rule of law, undermining people's faith in results, undermining people's confidence that judges are doing what they're doing for the right reasons as opposed to for political reasons, because he, he kicks up a lot of sand and throws up a lot of smoke on all these issues. And we'd be talking about the propriety of the president seeming to direct investigations against particular people who are his adversaries and direct, you know, the softening of enforcement actions against people who are his allies, like Joe Arpaio. And, you know, that's not good for anybody, but there's not a whole hell of a lot you can do about it because those are violations of, you know, of norms, democratic norms that are established over time. For the most part, those are not violations of law. The way we're going to see some of these questions play out uh, is dependent on what Bob Mueller finds. And it's possible that if Bob Mueller and his team push more and more and have more shoes drop uh, and more people put in cuffs and have to come before the well of the court, that Donald Trump will do more than just talk, that he will you know, engage in preemptive pardoning, it's possible, uh, or defund the Mueller team, it's possible. And then I think you're going to have a political fight, the likes of which, as the president likes to say, the likes of which the world has never seen. 
But that depends on a lot of different things. It depends on what other things are going to happen in the Mueller investigation, how much backbone, not just Democrats, but Republicans have in trying to stave this stuff off uh, and more than talking about it like Jeff Flake, but doing more actual um, concrete actions, uh, you know, taking concrete actions about it. And it also depends on what the president does. If the president stays his hand and starts behaving in a more, you know, traditional, respectful way about the independent function of law enforcement, then you're not going to get as much of a reaction. But all of that remains to be seen. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Preet. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was my conversation with Preet Bharara. Like I said, he's really good at this. If you haven't subscribed to his podcast, you should. It's a great mix of analysis, conversation, and humor. There's not another show out there like it. My great thanks to Preet for joining and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you again soon. Thank you.